Andy Media. Pretty much complete indifference. Although I noticed in yesterday's Saturday paper that came out of Melbourne, it was said that the statement that came out of Uluru had been to a large extent drafted by uh, what one might call right-wing racists, right-wing white racists who were consulted by Noel Pearson in some sort of stupid attempt to uh, get come up with a document that would be acceptable to the lunatic fringe right in Australia. So that, I would have thought, seriously undermines the credibility of what came out of Uluru. It definitely seems like it might be the potential end for the recognised campaign, at least from the perspective of uh, you know the Aboriginal community and the First Nations community. It, what sort of effect do you think, though, it's had on the the broader community? I mean, this campaign in general. Do you think it's been divisive or successfully divisive from the the government's point of view? I think it's been a complete waste of time and money from the beginning. I mean. Uh, the idea was an idea that God knows where it came from. It was a stupid idea from the start. The fact that the government was prepared to put $30 million into the campaign to promote it would seem to suggest that it was a pointless exercise anyway because governments don't put that sort of money into anything that's likely to benefit Aboriginal people. And the simple reality is that the reason it was uh, a stupid idea from the beginning is because the possibility today in the era post-Pauline Hanson, post-John Howard, post-Northern Territory intervention, the, the post-the-history wars, the chance of getting a question to do with any question to do with Aboriginal people in a referendum, the chances of getting it passed by the Australian people in 2017 is Buckley's and none. It's got a, it's got a snowball's chance in hell of getting through. So, and the, you know, I, I assume that Noel Pearson is not that stupid that he would have thought that it would get through. Um, and I can't understand. Well, it just it's beyond me to understand why anybody ever suggested the thing in the first place. It was a stupid idea in the beginning. It was doomed all the way through. The major consultations that were held in Victoria, the Aboriginal community representatives in in the biggest um, um, statewide consultations in the last 30 years, the Aboriginal community in Victoria almost unanimously, well, effectively unanimously, rejected the idea of constitutional recognition. And yet the the National Committee uh, that was set up by government proceeded uh, to push the idea regardless. You know, it's, it's obvious that it's always been obvious that um, the majority of Aboriginal people in southeastern Australia anyway uh, have always thought it was a dubious proposition, it was a dubious idea and it was never going to go anywhere and it wasn't um, something that Aboriginal people were interested in. But because, um, you know, um, the right wing of the new Aboriginal middle class are so determined to push it uh, and because the mainstream media in Australia are so in much in love with the right-wing representatives of, or pseudo-representatives of Aboriginal Australia. That's the only thing that Australians hear about. Definitely. Now, it happened, uh, the Uluru uh, statement happened on uh, the National Sorry Day, what in itself is very much one of these symbolic gestures, the very fact that, you know, Rudd, uh, you know, made the apology while the uh, Northern Territory intervention says so much in of itself while the intervention was going on. 
but has there been any positives that have come out of it? Has it given it all a platform for, the, you know, I guess the, the campaigns for sovereignty and the campaigns for treaty around the wow. country? Has there been any, uh, do, can you see any sort of positive that's come out of it in that sense that it's uh, really, uh, you know, maybe arced some people up? Let's go back a step. You know, you mentioned Rudd's apology. I mean, and you correctly sort of uh, suggested that that was a token gesture as well. Well, let's look at that for a moment. You know, the majority of Australians seem to somehow or other have been conned into the propaganda that Kevin Rudd apologised to the Aboriginal people, that the Aboriginal people have received their apology. Now, Kevin Rudd didn't apologise to the Aboriginal people. Kevin Rudd apologised to a small segment of the Aboriginal community, those members of the Stolen Generations. And I don't begrudge the Stolen Generations getting their apology, but the simple reality is there's never been an apology to Aboriginal Australia, uh, and yet most Australians believe that there has, you know, which, which, which indicates yet again just how superficial and, and almost non-existence the awareness and knowledge of ordinary Australians have about, you know, the, the real issues involved here. And, you know, if, if the Australian people are expected to, to make their minds up in terms of whether to vote yes or no in some sort of referendum to do an Aboriginal thing, um, you know, they're, they're woefully, hopelessly, pathetically ill-informed, you know. And so it's a, the whole debate about Aboriginal stuff has always been um, completely twisted uh, in a way in which is ultimately, inevitably ends up as being anti-Aboriginal. So, you know, it's a, an old pessimist like me who's been around for a long time can't see anything positive either in any of the events that are going on now or any possibilities into the future. But, you know, that's okay because I'll be dead when all this bullshit goes down anyway. You know, I'm an old man. And I'm lucky that I won't be, have to be around to see the inevitable, you know, future for Aboriginal Australia, which, in my opinion, means um, elimination. You know, that the the assimilation project is so advanced that we can expect that in 50 years' time, um, the genocide will be complete. There will be no Aboriginal people, and everybody should be happy. Now, back onto that topic you were discussing just there about uh, well-meaning non-Aboriginal people being tricked into um, these ideas. How do you think we can engage with these people um, in ideas of Aboriginal sovereignty? My suggestion is go to my website, www.kuriweb.org. Go to the uh, student resource page to do with um, uh, white privilege and whiteness and read all the stuff on there um, because, you know, one of the first things uh, Australians need to do if they want to understand what's happening to Aboriginal people is not come uh, talking to us but go home and look in the mirror because the real problem that confronts Aboriginal Australians today has, doesn't live in our community. The real problem that confronts Aboriginal people today is white racism and that, that's, a, that's a creature that doesn't live in our world, it lives in your world. So, you know... I say to my students who I teach at uh, university, uh, in order to understand what's happening to Aboriginal people, the well, first thing you've got to do is go out and find yourself a white racist. And I say to them, you, you don't have to look too far for one of them. There's a lot of them in Australia, and if you can't find one, just go home.
raise the subject of Aboriginal uh, issues around the dinner table and you'll find you're racist. And when you find you're racist, then challenge their ideas and you'll find out then just how difficult the task in front of us is. In terms of like an issue like treaty, do you, do you see any potential for that, uh, I guess, advancing in Australia at all? And, and what, what could it potentially look like? And, and many, of, uh, many of my um, political allies in the movement in southeastern Australia are strong supporters of the idea of a treaty, you know, and uh, I think that's a, well, in some ways, I think that's a far preferable option than nonsensical, meaningless constitutional amendments. But then at the same time, you've got to look at um, the history of treaties in the world, you know, and virtually all treaties. Uh, ever signed with Indigenous peoples have either been broken or have ended up largely worthless. Even the strongest treaty in the world ever signed between a colonial power and uh, Indigenous people, the Treaty of Waitangi in New Zealand, was effectively ignored for 150 years by successive uh, New Zealand governments. And it's only been in very recent times that some the Maori people have managed to start having some of those uh, provisions enforced. So... And, and the other problem with treaties is that uh, if you sign a treaty from a position of weakness, then you're very much at a disadvantage, you know. Um, the, the reason that Treaty Waitangi was so so strong was because the um, the Maoris had actually fought the British to a standstill, you know, in the colonial area in, in New Zealand. So the Maoris signed that treaty from a position of uh, absolute strength. Now, any treaty that's... Uh, likely to be signed in Australia is going to be signed from a position of absolute um, weakness on the part of Aboriginal people. And the only way you can ever uh, enforce a treaty from a position of weakness is militarily. Now, Aboriginal people are not in a position to do that. So I would expect that any treaty that was signed between the Australian government and any Aboriginal nation in Australia will invariably be a treaty that's, um, you know, in the favour of the, of, the, of the powerful side who's signing it, you know. And if that's the case, then you can almost bet your life that um, such a treaty would not have the sort of provisions that uh, would be beneficial to Aboriginal people. You know, the real, the real issues confronting Aboriginal people in the long run uh, about what is necessary for their survival have to do with um, uh, Aboriginal people uh, regaining control of their own affairs, self-determination, control of your own destiny, a fundamental human right. And in the sort of society we've got around us today... Uh, there's basically only two ways you can assert your uh, self-determination, and that's either militarily or or economically. And so, economic independence really is the is the key to future uh, uh, Aboriginal nations being able to determine, you know, their own niche in the Australia of tomorrow. You know, 45 years ago, the Black Power movement had the prescription for achieving self-determination, and that was via uh, economic independence. And that's why, in those days, we, you know, the the Black Power movement said, "Well, how? What's the prerequisite for for self-determination? What's the prerequisite for economic independence? And that's got to be land. And that's why land rights was such a key issue 45 years ago. And when we were talking about land rights. We weren't talking about some Mickey Mouse thing like native title, which doesn't give you ownership of anything. We were talking about land in the form of freehold title, proper, real ownership of land, which would then enable 
Aboriginal people who had that freehold title to land to develop whatever economic enterprises they saw fit that were, you know, was not in conflict with their basic cultural integrity uh, so that they could strive towards and build towards uh, some form of um, economic independence because, in the sort, like I said, in the sort of society we've got in Australia today, the only freedom you can attain is if you're genuinely economic independent. Whitefellas are encouraged to do that as individuals. Aboriginal people need to do it as clans, groups, extended families, whatever, because that's the Aboriginal way. Um, and that means that the, the freest person in Australia, folks, comes from Western Australia. Her name's Gina Reinhardt. Definitely on the subject of uh, people like Gina Reinhardt and economic independence, we recently had uh, bloody Twiggy Forrest over here being uh, announced West Australian of the Year after donating $400 million of his uh, his money to charity. And there's this real valorizing of uh, people, you know, mining magnets, particularly here in WA, you know, the, the Wild West mining state. And then you have people like Marcia Langton come along and say that, you know, the mining industry is great for Aboriginal people, that it's, uh, you know, a ticket for self-determination in, in, in an economic sense. And then go work in the mining industry and stuff. How do how do uh, I guess sovereignty activists and, and people like yourself negotiate with uh, these figures like Langton around this the relationship between the mining industry and Aboriginal people? When clearly you know people like Twiggy Forrest have been ripping off Aboriginal communities for years, and yet he can paint himself as this you know this this great person that's uh, you know helping communities and so forth. Well, there's two two things about Twiggy's announcement a week or so ago. I mean, it's remarkable the timing. He announced that the day after that uh, fairly uh, critical article appeared about him in uh, in the in the Weekend Australian, which had to do with his activities in Western Australia and how he'd done over Aboriginal people over there. The next day, we get uh, this big announcement that uh, effectively pushed that story aside, saying what a generous and great guy he is. Um, in terms of Professor Langton, Marcia is you know Marcia and I have known each other for 50 years. And uh, I can remember the time not that long ago when she was a staunch uh, opponent of the mining industry. In fact, if you go and have a look at John Pilger's film um, that he made, uh, The Secret Country, about 30 years ago, you'll see Marcia being incredibly critical of uh, mining industry types and, you know, and taking a much different line to what she does today. I can only assume, you know, that uh, her attitude today has probably got something to do with the large amount of... uh, research money she's managed to secure from uh, elements in the mining industry. Um, that could only be one of the only possible logical explanations for the radically different position that she's taken. Uh, but, you know, I don't want to waste my time arguing about Marcia. I think that the real um, black person in the woodpile in this discussion now is, is the likes of Twiggy Forrest. I mean, it's not that long ago I remember him and my dopey uh, cousin Warren Mundine coming up with some dodgy uh, scheme to create 50,000 jobs for Aboriginal people. That's funny. Uh, whatever happened to those 50,000 jobs, Twiggy, you know? I mean, I, I can't see how anybody could consider um, Twiggy to be in any way credible whatsoever in terms of um, his activities in Aboriginal in the Aboriginal affairs, you know? But, you know, I understand that Western Australia valorise um, mining industry types. I understand that that's the p- peculiar white man's mythology of the the West, you know. That's that's uh, life, as they say in my language, Gumbanja, say la vie.